Hey, hi. I'm so glad to be here. Profoundly honored to be here. I am a new transplant to Beaverton. I got married in last July, and I split my time between Bend and Beaverton. And I like to like make fun of people. Have you been to Bend where the roundabouts, we have lots of roundabouts, and they're kind of confusing for people. And so I've made it my life to kind of make fun of tourists who can't use the roundabouts well. And so now that I've been in Beaverton long enough to get three tickets from Lombard and Allen's traffic light, I just have no room anymore. I'm just, I'm glad to be in Portland, but it hasn't been friendly to me so far. Um, I love Acts. I love this series. Acts to me is a book that is so driven. It's so power-packed and action-packed, and it's like of the moment. It's honestly exactly like what we're in right now. It's the season that we're in right now where anything could happen. And in fact, the passage that we're looking today features both a fire and an unlawful riot. So that's cool. Um, But actually, it's really encouraging to me because it reminds me that there isn't anything that we're going through that has surprised God. He's not wringing his hands. He's not wondering how they're going to do with the COVID thing. They didn't see this coming. He is okay with putting us in uncomfortable situations. He's all right with it. I'm not okay with it, but he's okay with it. And so God has been here already. The one who stands off our timeline, the one who touches down into our moment, we find him in the eternal current that is running through this very moment. God is in this moment, just like he was in the ax moment. And we can count on it. We can take it to the bank. So we're going to look at this passage. It's in Acts 19, starts in verse 23. And the first sentence is sort of a barn burner of a sentence. It starts out, it says, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, if you're a Bible nerd, the first three words in that sentence will be like magic to your ears. It's so fun. About that time. Because about that time serves as like a a neon flashing light that begs us to ask a question of the text. What is the question we should ask the text when we see the words about that time? About what time? What got us here? What happened? Because none of these incidents are isolated. God is at work in all of them. And so we want to know what time, what happened? What, what happened that caused this great disturbance? And it's really easy. And this one, all we have to do is walk our way back through Acts 19. And when we get to the beginning of Acts 19, we're going to find ourselves two years earlier in the story. And Paul has decided to preach at the temple in, at the synagogue in Ephesus. So Paul comes preaching the gospel to the Jews. He comes saying, this is what you should know. This Jesus is who you've been waiting for. Jesus is who you've been longing for. And they love it until they just don't. And they get upset and frustrated. And he ends up feeling that it's not going to work anymore. And so he takes his disciples. And and the passage tells us that he goes to the school of Tyrannus. Scholars kind of debate over who Tyrannus was. We don't really know, but he was probably like a Greek philosopher. Someone who, like last week, Pastor Brad talked about um, how thoughts were all shared in the marketplace. Where in, in this culture, philosophy was a business. 
Philosophy was what they built their lives around, uh, thinking things through, figuring out what they believed. It, it was, it was a, a part of their whole life system. It's, we're, we don't think quite as deeply, I think, now. And so this is how they were. So Tyrannus is probably a Greek scholar who has set up a school for junior philosophers. And Paul probably rents a room, and it says he preaches every day. He preaches every day, not just for a week and not just for two weeks, but for two years. Paul preaches every day, not in the synagogue anymore. He's, the, the Jews have been waiting and longing for a Messiah, and then they don't want the one that Paul presents. And so he takes the message out to where the world is, to where the hungry, dying, needy world is. And he, he, he preaches until it says all, A-L-L, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So what we can gather from this passage is that Paul is really popular. He's, he's, a, he's like a guru. He's really popular. He's not talking to the Jews anymore. He's talking to everyone. And also... The message of Jesus is taking root and multiplying rapidly. Like a lot is happening here. And the thing is, it's not just a message people are hearing. It's power that they're experiencing. Miracles are happening through Paul, so much so that people are bringing their handkerchiefs and their aprons to him for him to pray over them. And then they take it back and people are healed. And in this culture, magic and divination was a really big deal, even if it wasn't usually the real deal. They loved this idea of the mystical. And I think we, we always are looking and longing for something larger than life to touch down and so that we can see that there's something bigger than us. And so that's what people are looking for. And Paul is showing them real, true power. People are being healed. People are being delivered. But the bigger thing is yet to come because in verse 19 of chapter 19, it says that the people who have been involved in sorcery bring their scrolls and burn them together. And, and this is a big, big fire because it says that the total value of these scrolls is 50,000 drachma, which would be several million dollars today. And so this is either really, really expensive scrolls or a whole lot of people at the fire. But what this actually is, is movement. Something is happening here. It's revival. And this is what happens when, you know, because you can do the every head bowed, every eye closed, yes to Jesus thing. You could say, yes, I, I do. I have the mental assent. You are who you say you are. And then you can go a step further and you can say, I'd like to invite you to be a part of my life. And then you can go a step further and say, I believe what I really, I really, really believe it. I'm really going to believe it. But this is different. When it starts to hit your life and the seeds plant into soil and the plants start to come up through the dirt and it starts to cost you money, something's moving. Something's changed in you. That's when the gospel is real. When it starts to cost you in obedience or suffering or money, when it starts to cost you in the way you use your words, when it starts to cost you in the way you post on Facebook, when it starts to cost you in the way you share your opinion at the grocery store, something is changing in our lives then. Because it's really easy to say, I'm gonna give my life to Jesus, but then hold on to a whole lot of other things that we love too. Like I, I love this idea of loving Jesus while simultaneously worshiping at the altar of my own ego. I love that idea, but it doesn't often work. 
And we know it's working when it begins to cost us a little. And what this looks like to me, what's going on with these people in this moment, these people who are starting to understand grace for the first maybe time ever, it looks wholehearted. This looks like a wholehearted relationship with Jesus. And I love the word wholehearted. I I don't know it always, like how to define it always. I'm not always sure what it looks like in my life, but I do know that I know it when I see it in somebody. And I know it when I feel it in myself. Um, I formed a little definition that I've used as a grid for my own life that I kind of run my life through it. And so you can do any definition you want or you can borrow mine if you like it. Wholehearted is a singular devotion to the person and purpose of Jesus Christ to the exclusion of all more enticing or impressive options. Easy. Singular devotion to the person and purpose of Jesus Christ to the exclusion of all more enticing or impressive options. And you may wonder, like, what's more impressive than Jesus? What's more enticing than following Jesus? Oh, so many things. You know, so many things. Like on any given day, I would would rather do a lot of other things with my life than be singular and single-minded and fully devoted to him. And so I want to drag my little things with me into my relationship. and, And this is what wholehearted looks like. This is what we're seeing when we, and it's funny, I was thinking today about how we sing that song, though none go with me, still I will follow. Like all these people I have to leave behind in order to follow Jesus fully. And I was like, no one's ever tried to keep me from following Jesus except me. And so if all the other versions of Bo don't go with me, that's okay. Because I'm gonna take this one single-minded, single-hearted, fully devoted to the person and purpose of Jesus Christ. So, the very next line in our text, right after they burn their idols, right after it costs them all the money, is this, about that time. After the gospel's been preached, after two years, after all the working and moving and hopefully growing, after it starts to cost them, then about that time, there arises a disturbance. Now, the word time here in this scripture is not like tick-tock minutes on the clock time. The word time here is a moment. It's a miracle moment. It's that moment when God touches down on our timeline and we feel the intersection of the divine with the very mundane. It's like if two people go on a date and one of them says, we spent an hour together, and the other one says, we had a moment. That's this, this time, about that time, something's about to happen. God's about to move. God's doing something. That's this moment in the city of Ephesus. So about that time, and now we are here at our text. That's the longest intro ever, but we're at the text. That's good. (laughs) About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made the silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. 
He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped through the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. It's hard when you have to protect your god. You know, that's, that's a lot of work. I had a friend who took his son on a missions trip to India and they were in a temple, a, a, Buddhist, a, a Buddhist temple, and there were just hundreds of statues of Buddha all around it. And um, the lady, they were there at the time when ladies came in to clean all the statues. And the little guy, like 11 years old, says to his dad, I don't know if I could worship a God I had to dust. I don't know. (laughs) It's so true. Gods we have to protect probably are not actually gods at all. And this is the place where the gospel not only costs the people who believe it, it's beginning to cost people who don't. Because lives that are fully transformed begin to transform society. Not always in ways that make people, that people are crazy about. But transform lives begin to transform society. But a lot of times we think, I am a believer. What I should do is transform society. I should fix that. But it's always, in the Bible, always starts with us, starts inside. It starts with a wholehearted devotion to the person and purpose of Jesus first before we try to fix anything or anybody else. So Artemis was a goddess from Greek mythology. She, they believed she was the daughter of Zeus, and she was big business in Ephesus. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was nearly the size of two football fields. 20,000 people could gather there. It, um, commerce and religion were so intertwined in Ephesus that it also served as a kind of makeshift bank uh, there just there couldn't have been a more significant place for this divine confrontation. There couldn't have been. This it was right by the marketplace, the main marketplace, and so everyone is hearing what's going on here. So Demetrius tells the people that this is really bad. Our goddess is being um, she, she's gonna she's gonna fall to shame here, and we're gonna lose our money in the process. And so it's he tells the people the sky is falling, and then Luke tells us. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. So eventually, the people shout in unison for two hours. They're committed to this idea. They're committed to the riot. They shout in unison for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city clerk quiets them down and convinces them that they don't want to be charged with an unlawful riot. And they all just go home as riots do. People just go home. And so they stop and they abandon this idea. And I look at it and I think, These people, most of them didn't even know why they were there. They have at best a half-hearted devotion to the person and purpose of Artemis. You know, they're, they're not devoted to this. They just got here. They just joined the fray. They just, they joined in the shouting. That's all they've got to bring to this. They've got no devotion to this God. And it's easy to look at pagan worship and think, man, they're just lazy in their commitment. Why can't they be more committed? But... The followers of the one true God are not exempt from that same idea. In Matthew 21, Jesus goes on a rampage cleaning out the temple. This is the temple that was built to house God's presence and in honor of his name. 
and it has become a shopping mall. And Jesus goes in and clears it out. And I wonder, how do we get there? How do we get to a place where our devotion is mixed with commercialism and mixed with idolatry and mixed with all sorts of other things? How do we land there? Paul calls it the sin that so easily entangles us, small gods and silly idols, reputation, greed, dishonesty, the kinds of things that mix in with us and start to make us murky in the way we love God. But you know what? It's not only bad things. There's also a whole swamp of good Christian things that keep us divided. There's also a whole swamp of good ideas and good plans that keep us divided in our love for him. There are things that I want to devote my life to do, and I realize God's not even in this at all. There's a scary verse in 2 Chronicles. It's spoken of King Amaziah. It says, he did what was right in the Lord's sight, but not wholeheartedly. We can do what's right in the wrong way. We can do what's right and miss the heart of God in it. This is echoed by Jesus himself in Matthew 15. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I had a moment um, when I went to speak at my church in Bend, I, w- I actually wasn't speaking that Sunday, and I got there a little late, and I was late for worship, and I was excited to get in and worship, and I was ready for it, and I was, and a man met me in the lobby, and he said, I just want to tell you, every time you get up to speak, I want to shout, sit down. And I was just like taken back by it, and I didn't have time to talk to him about it very long, but I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of harsh. Um, and I went in, and they were singing. It was like probably 2009, so they were probably singing How Great Is Our God, I'm guessing. <laughs> and um, I sat down, and I was thinking of all the ways that that offended me and broke my heart and hurt me and made me feel small and unworthy. And I was frustrated and I was thinking all manner of unholy thoughts about that guy. (laughs) And the whole time I was thinking all of those things, I was singing, how great is our God? The whole time. Why? Because my church was watching. And I felt so sad about it. And I just said, Jesus, I am so sorry that I did not bring you my wholehearted worship today. And Jesus said to me, I really think I don't need your wholehearted worship. I'd rather have your wholehearted pain. Just bring your honest pain. Bring that as your worship. I'm okay with that. Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We can do the right thing with the wrong heart, and that changes everything. It turns out wholehearted love starts in the deep place and works its way out from there. Wholehearted devotion to Jesus will change us first. And I worry that we, especially during pandemics and whatnot, politics and all of those things, that we want to change what's outside first and then hope that that changes us. And it just never works that way. Otherwise, this would be the gospel of behavior modification, and that's not what we're selling. This is the gospel of grace that changes and heals and restores and redeems and moves us toward a life that looks more like the God we love. Wholehearted love for Jesus will show in our lives and then ripple out in our world. It's not easy to pin it down with words, but I think we know it when we see it. I know it because I am 
not a good dancer, but I am a wholehearted one. I am. (laughs) My husband is a good dancer, but I'm just a wholehearted one. I am a great dishwasher, but I am not a wholehearted one. I want to be wholehearted in my devotion. It's possible, though, I think, to be a good Christian, but not a wholehearted one. It's possible to vote right, give right, serve right, speak right, and still not have a singular devotion to Jesus. So self-check. How do we decide? How do we figure out, where am I at? Am I, in terms of my worship, where is my heart and my head and my actions? What is it that I'm bringing to him? Here are three signs, I think, and there's lots of them, but these are three signs that we can see in our lives if we are beginning to become divided in the way we love him. The first one is a reliance on other sources for the help that only Jesus can give. And man, I love a good government, guys. I do. I love it. And I want to depend on a good, right government. But I can't rely on that for the the strength and the life that only Jesus can give. I love good friendships, but I can't rely on those for the help that only Jesus can give. I love my marriage, but I can't rely on it for what only Jesus can give. I have to know not just what do I love, but what am I leaning on? Because this is where he wants to step in and be everything. I want to rely fully on him. Um, The second one is a a myopic focus on being right instead of loving right. And I think we've never been in a season where there are so many opinions flying so fast and so far and so intensely. And I just want to love right. And I also love to be right. I do. I love being smart and I want to be right. But I'm, I'm finding that we as believers, as followers of Jesus, have been trusted with some power. And I'm about to say a really profound thing, and you might want to write it down. Power is powerful. It is. So my husband and I uh, went to breakfast the other day, and we were on our way to a wedding that we had to set up for. And we were on a time crunch. And as we were getting to the end of our breakfast, the waitress came and she said, I'm sorry, you guys aren't going to be able to leave. The wind blew a power pole over and the power line is across the exit. No, nobody can leave. And then the fireman told us it was going to be hours. There was no way anyone could do it. So they gave us permission to walk out and somebody picked us up and all of that. But when we walked out, I was like, it's just this tiny little line. It's just, a, it's just a tiny line. And when it's in the right position, it powers our whole city. But that power out of position does damage. That power out of position causes death. And so being mindful of the power we possess for life, for death, for good, for evil, for hope, for discouragement, Mindful of the power that God has trusted me with means sometimes I've got to choose to focus only on loving well with that power because it really does. It takes divine power to love well, but I don't want to use that power to get my point across. I don't want to use that power to be the smartest kid in the room. I just don't. I just think this, this focus on saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love well if it kills me. Is, is part of a wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Number three is spiritual, emotional, and relational numbness. There's something about living a divided life 
especially if there are things inside our lives that we feel like we have to hide away, especially if there are things we feel like we have to protect, if people would know the real me, if they would know that sometimes I sit in the front row during worship and rage against something someone told me, the things we have to hide away take energy from us. They take, it takes power from us. It takes our energy and our concentration and our focus to be able to stay hidden. And in fact, a therapist told me that if someone is living a profoundly hidden life, if they've got shame they don't want to let out, if they've got sin they don't want to talk about, if they've got brokenness they don't want to reveal, it can take 97% of their capacity to protect their secrets, to protect their reputation, to feel okay about themselves. That leaves them with 3% to spend on loving the people they're protecting themselves for. And so this emotional numbness, passionless living is the product of a divided heart. It takes energy to be divided. It takes a lot of energy to hide our real selves away or to keep our little gods safe. So worship team, you can come on back. As we begin to align our hearts with his heart and our will with his will, all the other idols begin to shake and fall. And all his kingdom becomes truly established inside of us. There's another scripture that I, I sometimes don't even like to say because it seems so crazy. It's, it's spoken of King Asa in Second Chronicles, and it says, he didn't tear down the high places. Nevertheless, he was wholehearted for his whole life. It's not about getting everything right. It's not about sinless living. It's not about checking the boxes. It's not about having some kind of something, good resume, good pedigree. This is about being honest and real in front of God. This is about being wholeheartedly devoted to who he is and devoted to the idea that he loves us no matter what. That, I think, wholehearted living will make you more brave than you have ever been and it will make you more effective than you have ever dreamed. When you're able to be truly honest before your God about who you are and where you've been and what you worship, when you're able to bring him all of the pain, all of the heartache, all of the stuff you need grace for, that's when he can begin to work and move. And, and in every believer whose life becomes single-minded in their pursuit of him, we begin to see change in our world, change in our community, change in our church, because God is at work in us and then through us. If you feel divided, between your devotion to Jesus and your need to succeed, or between Jesus and your desire for money, between Jesus and your secret addiction to alcohol or sex or gossip. Every day, every hour, every minute, I have one prayer for you, one simple, difficult, awesome, awful prayer. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. So Jesus, we gather up all the things that we've stored away in these hearts. We gather up all the years of brokenness and all the things that we thought disqualified us from your presence when actually they're the very things you died to heal. And we bring our whole lives to you, lock, stock, and barrel. 
We bring the ugly and the pure and the messy and the miraculous and the winds and the wounds. We bring them to your feet and we ask you, oh, great creator, would you do what we cannot? Would you help us to become fully, singularly devoted to the person and purpose of your son, Jesus Christ? In your name we pray. Amen.
so good. And uh, Bo, I just can't thank you enough for being with us. I'm really glad that she has moved into the neighborhood and uh, it's a privilege to have you. I often say uh, that the church will learn a lot about who I am by the friends I invite to speak. And uh, thank you for sharing so many things that you, you said it better than I could. And uh, I'm just so excited for, for the word that she shared with us because I think there's so much truth for us in this season and what she just gave us. And so as we close the service, let me just offer this benediction to, to all of us. And we've got a few people in the room tonight, a few staff members and families. and. And I just want to offer to all of you online and those of you here today, may we be men and women who are courageous enough to stand before this God who has shown us his great love and show him our hearts. All the good and all the bad, may we have the courage to be transparent. May we let him sort through the, the trash that we've, that we've put out. May we allow him to speak into our lives and may we become wholehearted followers of Jesus. We ask in his name, amen. Everybody have an amazing, amazing week. And again, we're praying for all of you and just be on the lookout for more communication about what's happening. And we will see you guys real, real soon.